0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Princeton University Press Ideas Podcast, a joint production of Princeton University Press and the New Books Network. I'm Mark Clobus, and today I'm speaking with Steve Nichols, author of the book the Alien Worlds, How Insects Conquer the Earth, and Why Their Fate Will Determine Our Future. Steve, welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, nice to be here. Well, glad to have you on our show. I was wondering if you could start us off by telling our listeners something about yourself.
1: Okay. Uh, Well, um, I suppose I will describe myself as an entomologist uh, in that um, I did entomology for a while at the University of Bristol, but that was um, way back in the seventies and very early eighties, the last century now, of course. but i've always remained interested in in insects uh since I, I left the university i've been working in um wildlife natural history and science filmmaking so in other words what i would regard as public outreach for science and uh, i've always tried to do shows on the groups of animals that get the least publicity and that is basically the the invertebrates more often than not i've made Quite a few series on insects. I've made mean, quite a few series on crabs and spiders and stuff like that, um, in, a, in a, a way to try and get you know people more interested in these. I say obscure groups, but they're obviously vitally important groups, as I'm sure we'll you know come on to later uh, when we're chatting.
0: So, what led you to write a book about uh, the invertebrates rather than? Uh, simply you know using the 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 films and 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 other media that you've used up to this point what what led you to 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 use that format to to, you know open people up to that
1: sure uh it's a very good question and i I think the main reason is that there's just so much uh to be said about insects in, in particular and there's always a limit to what you can do in a tv show or even a tv series um you can only delve into it in so much detail uh and it I've been able to, you know, to do that with some broadcasters. Um, we just finished a a series last year for a broadcaster called Curiosity Stream called Planet Insect, which you know delved into insect lives in, in, in quite some detail. But even so, um, you know, it's the kind of information you're able to put over is the equivalent of a, a good magazine article i suppose rather than a, you know a bit more meaty stuff so so part of the reason for writing it was i had all this stuff about insects welling up inside of me figured <laughs> i needed to get it out although know, i wouldn't not able to sleep at nights you know so um, so that was one reason but the other reason is that i throughout my career as, well, as a wildlife filmmaker i have also been a, a passionate conservationists, and I've been trustees of various conservation organizations. And of course, insects are facing a bit of a crisis at the moment, or a lot of a crisis at the moment, with their populations falling dramatically uh, you know, right around the world. So I also wanted to do something that would, which would kind of showcase that, but not a, a kind of gloom and doom conservation book. I mean, there are some very good books out there already about the, you know, what's been called the insect apocalypse. Um, Um, And I didn't want to repeat those. I also didn't want to, you know, put people off from, oh, I'll just read, you know, some more bad news stories. What I wanted to do with the book was to show what extraordinary creatures insects are at every level uh, in order to kind of, you know, encourage support for them. So that then when I introduce quite gently in many ways in the book, the idea that the um, insect, you know, populations are under threat, um, that it might be better received than just uh, you know another um you know crazy conservationists banging on about you know animals disappearing off the planet so there, there were multiple reasons the, the the other reason was um I, i'm also a, a as, as a wildlife filmmaker i'm also a stills photographer as well and over the years i've been taking stills of insects um and i also wanted the book to to like Almost be like a a bit like some of the wildlife films that i've made where it well illustrated as well um so the other reason for designing the book as we did was to make sure that there was a a lot of um revelatory photographs in it um so that if your eyes get a bit tired from the the text then you can kind of glance at the picture and have a little rest and admire the insects and then you know carry on learning about what's going on so there were kind of lots of motivations for it, really, and they all just came together a, a few years ago. Um, and I thought, no, I'm just going to make a start on this. And it was one of those books that I just kind of got rolling, and and you know, I wouldn't say wrote itself, but I, it was it was dragging me through it almost. <laughs> and energy to it that kept me going um, as I was delving into all this all this research from from uh, places around the world
0: i had to say that the photographs do a great job towards achieving that goal because people oftentimes you know find you might find insects creepy or disgusting and the photographs in 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 your uh in your book are are are, you know i I don't want to oversell it but they're gorgeous they're they're they're, they're colorful and and they really show the the insects that you describe it it, it, to be you know you know very beautiful creatures in, in, in a way that we don't often appreciate if we don't have the 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 perspective the 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 ability to really you know capture them in 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 their environment in the way that you do and we tend to as we so often do interpret them by how we see them in our environment you know crawling on on the floor or, or buzzing in our room or something like that
1: uh that's absolutely right and and you know trying to get some good PR for insects is a good thing um they are beautiful things you just have to kind of you know look Closely enough. Um, I mean, just next door from where we're doing this interview now, I've got um, quite a collection of cockroaches. (laughs) Not (laughs) pests. Not the the kind of um, American roaches, German roaches that you see running around your kitchen, but a different range of species from around the world. Um, And even they're beautiful. And if I'm giving talks and things, I often take them along um, to show people because. I say cockroach and everybody has a reaction. Oh, no, horrible, disgusting. And then I pull out um, a a culture I've managed to breed of uh, some roaches from Southeast Asia, which are in English are generally called emerald roaches, and they are iridescent green um, and absolutely beautiful. And almost every time I pull these out of the box to show my audience, there's a complete change. There's an intake of breath. And, wow, I never realized, you know, cockroaches... Were that amazing, so um, so they look good, but what I found, uh, you know, I've been lucky enough to travel the world, um, filming um, insects over the last, well, pretty much four decades now, um, is that the behaviour is so amazing as well. And again, so I often use cockroaches as as, as an example. You know, there are uh, cockroaches. There's a, a species of roach called the Pacific beetle roach. Um, which actually produces a kind of milk for its growing sort of embryos, um, literally cockroach milk. And and this stuff is about three times richer than the richest mammal milk. So um, it, they're kind of too small to you know to milk for it. <laughs> they're not going <laughs> to milk or oat milk, I don't think, in the near future. But it's just one of those things that again people have no idea. And once you point it out, you know, once you guide them to this, then. You know, the fascination is there. It's it's um, you know, it's just a question of of looking at these things in the right kind of way.
0: And you help uh that process from this uh, with your opening chapter, which you describe what insects are. And here there's sort of a, a sorting process that takes place because sometimes people talk about bugs as this all-inclusive category. And and you uh walk the reader through this, the, you, you gradually, f- you sharpen the focus to, to define exactly what is an insect. What What is an insect? In, in, in what role do they play in terms of our overall ecology?
1: Well, what is an insect? is it's, it's a slightly tricky question in some ways. Um, uh, if you look at a textbook, it will sort of say insects are a type of arthropod, right? That's very true. Other arthropods include spiders, um, millipedes, uh, uh, centipedes, um, scorpions, um, crustaceans. So insects belong to that broad group of, of creatures. Um, but the, when you try and define them further from their characteristics, it gets quite tricky. So a textbook will tell you that insects are divided into uh, three main parts, a head, a thorax, and an abdomen, uh, and the thorax carries six legs and sometimes a couple of pairs of wings. Um, which is fine, except there are three groups of, of animals, uh, springtails and, um, coneheads and, uh, a, a group of, um, bristletail-like creatures, which, um, are divided into three parts, have six legs, they're hexapods, but they're not any longer regarded as being insects, which is a bit inconvenient. Um, I said insects have, usually have like two pairs of, of wings Attached to the thorax, but there's a group of insects in the bristletails, for example, which um, have never had wings. So not all insects are winged. So it's kind of uh, tricky. We can do it now a little bit better with um, molecular genetics because we can look directly at the, um, the the DNA of of all these animals now, and that's been done by a a, a big. Bee- group of, of scientists hundreds of scientists taking part in this um, project called the one kite project which is the 1000 insect transcriptome uh, project uh, which is a to look at the genomes of a thousand different kinds of insects from across the whole spectrum of insects and work out not only who they are if you like but how they're related to each other uh, and that's been uh, full of surprises really because um i think i I suppose most people i speak to would assume that you know insects and spiders at least must be you know quite closely related they they and look similar and most people just call them bugs uh but it turns out that insects are are, are a long way from spiders on the family tree um their closest relatives is a a kind of crustacean called a remipede which um nobody um listening to this will have ever seen because they only live in deep sea caves um, in a few parts of the world. And they were discovered only in the 1970s, I think, by uh, Jill Yeager from the Smithsonian. Um, they, they live in in caves that extend inland but are connected to the sea and have this like dual layer of seawater and freshwater um, on it. And, uh, uh, and they live in the kind of saltwater part of this. And they look a bit like swimming centipedes um, but it turns out, when you look at the genetics, that they are the closest living relatives of insects. So when you plot this all out, it actually turns out that insects are actually crustaceans. Um, they, they nest, as, as, as um, phallogenists would say, uh, within the kind of greater crustacean um, family tree. So what we have are these very peculiar um, terrestrial uh, crustaceans most of which have got six legs and a great deal of which have got um, wings of uh, some sort um so it's not an easy description <laughs> basically what an insect is
0: oh and it's understandable that it's it they're, they're so difficult to uh define because as you describe in your book i mean there, there's such a wide range of of uh of, of of uh species that we that we include with, within the category of insects. And, and and as you explained, I mean it part a lot of it's because they have this enormous, you know, history uh, on this planet, one that, that that predates, you know, humanity, one that goes back even before the dinosaurs. I was wondering if you could perhaps uh, elaborate upon how it is that, that you know that, that the enormous past created that diversity that that we witnessed today, which can to make you know classifying insects so challenging.
1: Yeah. So I mean the, the the fossil history of insects. Uh, the more recent fossil history is is not too bad, but the the, the sort of deep origins we still don't know a, a whole heap about. Um, that because the um, the fossil evidence is is quite scarce. We can imply a lot from the genetics these days, uh, from the molecular um, studies of DNA, but um, we don't know a massive amount about it. But it seems like well. As I said uh, previously, insects are arthropods, so the first question to answer is where did arthropods come from? Um, They're very prevalent in the uh, Cambrian period. Um, There's a a famous band of uh, of, um, fossils called the Burgess Shales from the Rocky Mountains of Canada, which is full of the most amazing animals. but a lot of which are arthropods. Uh, a lot of which are the early arthropods, which are things like like trilobites. Um, but they appear in in quite some profusion right at the start of the Cambrian, which is when most people would imagine you know um, complex life really got underway. Um, so they must have had some kind of history before that. Um, and we do now know that there are some uh, quite complex animals um, living in the period before the, the the Cambrian, which used to be thought of as being pretty lifeless, at least in terms of multicellular animals. And a few of those have been suggested to be the kind of proto-arthropods, although that's still very disputed. This is very disputed territory. Um, however, having said that, um, once the Cambrian started, arthropods just went into overdrive um, and produced a, a great range of species, including some you know really big ones. Uh, the, there's a group of uh, that, that are represented in the burgess shales called animal acarids, which are uh, apps can get absolutely enormous, I mean you know, meters long. So it's all quite impressive. But insects, um they diverged from their uh, like remipede-like ancestors um at some point and then um invaded the land uh, they were probably the third group to invade the land. Other arthropods got there first. Um, the centipedes and millipedes got there before them, uh, quite definitely quite some time ago, because we've got fossil tracks of, of millipedes. And some of those millipedes went on to grow to enormous sizes. So there's one called Arthropleura, which um, was uh, got to about two metres in length, which is one hell of a millipede. And... And then, um, then the spiders and scorpions came onto land. Uh, and then after that, uh, last, but in fact, not least were the insects. Um, and then for, for reasons that, um, well, the book goes on to to delve into all kinds of reasons, but for a lot of reasons they just really did well and became pretty much the, the most um, successful, most numerous group of animals on the planet. Um, I mean, a few scientists might take issue with that in the sense that maybe mites, maybe nematode worms, might be as diverse as insects. But to be honest, they're pretty much microscopic and nobody's really looking at them. So as far as I'm concerned, you know, insects have the accolade of the most successful group of animals um, sort of ever to have lived. Um, And there's a whole bunch of reasons, which I'm sure we'll come to as as, um, we go on with this, um, but uh, that, that, that made them so successful but the the point i guess for this part of the the discussion is that because they're so successful they they're just live just about everywhere in terrestrial ecosystems and in freshwater ecosystems so they uh, uh completely underpin those ecosystems um they uh without insects um you know a lot of those ecosystems would pretty much collapse insects are, are food for a whole heap of things, but they recycle massive amounts of, of material. Um, they obviously pollinate plants, including, you know, a lot of our crops as well, um, and they're involved in all kinds of other relationships, which make them the kind of you know, linchpins of, of terrestrial and freshwater ecosystems. They're, um, ancient relatives to crustaceans have done the same in sea, largely, um, there are some marine insects, but not many. Um, But once you get to land and fresh water, you know, insects have just gone into overdrive and therefore underpin most of our ecosystems, which, of course, is why we should be so worried about the decline in insect populations, because it literally is pulling the rug out from under our feet if we're not careful,
0: That. A uh, role that insects play uh, in ecosystems is really, I think, best demonstrated in your chapter on insects and plants. And and the fact that insects play a role in pollination is something that you know m- many of us learn when we're uh, in in uh, you know primary school and, and 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 you know over the course of our of our you know basic educations. But you elaborate that in that chapter about how. It's so much more than that. I was wondering if you could perhaps talk about that interrelationship between insects and plants and and, and how that underscores why, you know, you know, the threat to insects that, that we see today, you know, could really jeopardize not just, you know, the the animal world, but the plant world as well.
1: Absolutely. Well, um particularly important for flowering plants, but insects do pollinate uh conifers and cycads and, and stuff as well. So they 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 do um, they are important in the life cycles of most kinds of the you know, bigger plants on the planet. But it's with the flowering plants that they have the most relationship. I I think it's about eighty percent of the flowering plants are pollinated by insects. Um, so you can imagine if uh well, insects are disappearing, and there are some plants now that may well be um uh, threatened because they're running out of pollinators and um the the they're just not being able to produce enough seeds anymore to maintain their populations, um, but it's extraordinary the plants that insects do pollinate and how close and tight that relationship really is. So, uh, for example, I mean, there's the, the one that always amazes me personally is that there's um, I'm very fond of of orchids as a group of plants and. Uh, uh, And orchids and insects have got these extraordinary relationships. One of the strangest is in southwest Australia, where there's an orchid that actually flowers underground. Um, And it's usually said that it's a very rare orchid, but my feeling is that we don't know how rare it is because it flowers underground grafts to find. But it's certainly you don't find many of them. And bizarrely, it's pollinated by termites, because termites have been subterranean lives, and they can find these orchids. And they pollinate that orchid. Um, and that's a very tight, almost like one-to-one relationship, really, which just goes to show that it's not just any old insect that pollinates any old plant. That does happen for some more generalists. But an awful lot of them have got these these very tight relationships. And I, I guess one of the most famous stories is of um, a, a, an orchid uh, in Madagascar called the comet orchid which is a, a stunningly beautiful plant. Um, I've only seen, there's a few in cultivation in this country and I've managed to um, go and see one when it was flowering a few years ago. Um, and they're white flowers, um, maybe you know, a fair few inches across, but they have this enormous, like one foot long spur coming off the back of the flower. And that spur is where the orchid's nectar is and the nectar is at the very very tip of this um uh, this spur so um basically uh, charles darwin knew about this orchid and he charles darwin wrote a lot about um insects and plant pollination it was one of the things that he used in support of his ideas for uh, natural selection and at the time nobody knew what pollinated this um but darwin said look um, this is crazy, there has to be an insect somewhere with a, a tongue a foot long that can reach this um, uh, nectar because otherwise what's the orchid doing it for? Um, and he they, they suspected it would be a hawk moth because a lot of hawk moths do have very long tongues and they're very good at hovering in front of flowers to insert their tongues. Um, but it was actually quite some years later, I think it was after Darwin had died, that somebody actually found uh, a moth um, that had a foot long tongue that lived in in Madagascar um which they gave the um subspecific name of predictor to um because of charles darwin actually predicted it would exist based on his knowledge of these interrelationships um but that's a fair relationship with um orchids in that the orchid gets pollinated and the uh, hummingbird uh, the i sorry the hawk moth actually um gets some some food out of it so sugar rich high energy flight fuel um, out of the orchid but um, about a third of all orchids and there are some twenty-four thousand species of orchids about a third of them uh, actually cheat their insect partners um so some don't bother producing nectar at all um so uh and, and darwin knew about these as well but he didn't believe that um they weren't producing nectar he just thought we couldn't find it he he actually said insects are too smart to fall as he put it but for so gigantic an imposture. um yeah so uh, but it turns out you know that he was wrong he wasn't often wrong but he was in this case and uh, and these insect, these orchids do not produce nectar they simply rely initially at least on an insect thinking hey that's a really big bright colorful thing most of the big bright colorful things in this field give me a sugar drink um so it tries and it and and it keeps trying because it can't believe there's no sugar on offer and and actually by keeping trying it's a better pollinator. So <laughs> out, even if the even if the bees or whatever aren't, but some of the orchids actually um, mimic female bees or or wasps um, by secreting the same kind of chemicals that the female bees and wasps secrete to attract a mate to attract a male. Usually it's that way around. Um, and even the the lips of these orchids look a bit like insects, and so these poor male insects are drawn to the orchids with the promise of sex, and basically um, you know, get nothing out of it. But they're so convinced often that they try and mate with the flower, and it's in the mating process that um, they pick up the orchids pollen. Um, so um, so that that you know the, that's again a, a a very tight, very close relationship just between one or a couple of species of insects and one species of of plant so you can see that to maintain the diversity of plants across our our planet you have to have this massive diversity of insects you can't reduce one and expect the other to survive so and that that's important for us too because by um uh, number of crop species um i think um 75% uh, by by number of kinds of crops are, are pollinated by insects by weight it's a little bit less um, because a lot of our bulkiest crops are wind pollinated like rice and wheat and um, corn and stuff like that um, so um, you know that's a, a, a well I'm not sure I'd want to live on a diet of, of rice, wheat and,
0: and corn if we got rid of insects so I, I'd prefer we keep them <laughs> well to be honest it's Sometimes it's a little difficult to to uh, comprehend that insects are facing this crisis, and I, and I must it's a little diff- more difficult for me to do so after reading your chapters about mating and reproduction because after reading those it's like how could they possibly be dying out because they seem to be so good at producing mass quantities of insects in such a short period of time.
1: They are, and if you if you go to places where they're not so threatened, you really get a sense of of what insects can do. In my favourite example in terms of places um, I've been is is um, Mono Lake in California, in the Sierra Nevada. Um, it's a, it's home to um, brine flies. Uh, not the only place that's home to brine flies. And Great Salt Lake in Utah is, has lots as well. But Mono Lake is uh, fantastic. In the season, it, it, if you walk around the edge of the lake, it's literally like a mist rising around your feet as all these brine flies just fly up to get out of your way so so yes they they've got fantastic abilities to to reproduce um but part of the problem is the Mono lake is still fairly pristine i mean it's it's had uh, some effects from water extraction and stuff like that but it's still a fairly wild place um whereas most other places on the planet are much less wild um habitat loss has been tremendous i mean we we now globally, we farm 50% of the land on the, the planet. Here in Britain, we we farm 70% of it. And a lot of that farmland is soaked in um, pesticides um, and is very poor in a range of flowers. So the populations of insects literally tumbled on there. So there are places um, across Europe and in America where populations of insects have fallen by you know, 75 80% in just the last few decades so they'd already been declining before that because we know we've been you know using stuff like DDT in the past and that's obviously had its impacts um, but just the last few decades has seen that massive massive fall in insects which is you know very worrying but the good news is that if we do something about it now as you rightly pointed out most insects are extremely good at making more insects so um, you know, populations could recover quite quickly um, if we were able to um, do something about the things which are knocking them back at the moment.
0: One of the most fascinating chapters for me were were two chapters about insects as social creatures, and and I was it was especially interesting to read how the, the way you categorize them. I mean, you talk about how in in one chapter how bees and wasps go as you put it in the subtitle, from solitary to social. And then you describe the fascinating communities that you see with with ants and termites. It, I mean, people are familiar with these things, and yet it, it's 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 very interesting to read about how they are indeed social creatures. They're not just solitary, how they how they how they do work as a community. I was wondering if you could perhaps elaborate upon those traits and and, and and how they better inform our understanding of insects in general. Uh
1: yeah. I I mean the the social insects, the 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 big social insect colonies just Perhaps the most remarkable of all, really, um, they're best regarded as as not even um, social, you know, collections of creatures. They're often regarded as a single superorganism, so that uh, they they can work as as one organism, and that's largely because within those colonies, either just one or often, you know, a, a few individuals reproduce, and the rest don't. So all they're concerned with, essentially, is protecting the the, the uh, reproductive um, queens, as they're usually called, um, because they're related, because they're essentially, you know, quite closely related, and their ecology allows them to develop these these huge um, uh, colonies, um, and it's what they can achieve once they do that. So, for example, um, uh, leafcutter ants, which are, are widespread in, in Central and South America, and and certain species get up into sort of Texas and um, Arizona um they're um they're the largest kind of grazers uh, in their ecosystem you know much more than anything that any vertebrates that are um, eating leaves or grass or whatever um these things are harvesting huge amounts of, of vegetation they are luckily they're vegetarian ones um but similarly, there are um, the army ants, um, which live in in both um, Africa and um, Asia and um, Central and South America, which um, exist in such large colonies that they're almost like the top predators in in those environments. Uh, and there there are no leafcutter ants are pretty much new world, but um, elsewhere in the world, it's the termites that have taken to um, farming in the way that leafcutter ants you know use their uh, leaves that they collect to grow fungi as a crop um it's much the same way you know we do um crop growth um and termites do that in other parts of the world and they too have, have become the biggest you know grazers uh on the planet so they they are in their ecosystem so they they actually make a massive ecological impact um yeah you know the the the, the weight of ants in a tropical rainforest is, Essentially, like four times the weight of all the vertebrates in that rainforest so because they're small and you don't tend to see them until they bite you um you know you're um you're not really aware of the the sheer scale particularly of these social insects who are definitely
0: the most um successful of all the insects in many ways we appreciate the time you've taken to speak with us but before we go could you tell us what you're working on now
1: Yeah, so i i'm um uh, i have been doing some more work um on uh there's uh, TV shows for bugs, which won't be out for a little while yet. And, and these days, um, for the big organizations, TV shows are kind of, um, you know, under non-disclosure agreements, <laughs> which is very tedious. Um, but uh, but I am um, still working on books. I'm working on a, a, a book at the moment, um, which is kind of parallel to Alien Worlds. It's called Flower Power. And it basically not about hippies, although I do come from that generation, but it's about how flowering plants have changed the world on numerous occasions. Um, so it's a kind of parallel story to alien worlds, but with um, with the way that flowering plants have done a kind of similar thing to insects in a way, because you know they too are not as diverse as insects, but they are they are pretty diverse. So that's another one of these projects that you know takes a lot of time to uh, research because it, it needs to draw topics from you know. All all kinds of of uh, other areas. So um, so that's hopefully going to be ready by um, later next year, and so presumably the following spring, roughly, it, it should be out. Um, if I um, if I survive it.
0: <laughs> well, I I look forward to seeing it when it comes out, and it should make a nice companion piece on everyone's shelf with the uh, Alien Worlds. Yeah, hopefully. <laughs> well, well, Steve, thank you very much for taking some time out of your schedule to speak with us. I hope you have a wonderful day.
1: Yeah. Thank you very much. It's been a real pleasure. Always happy to talk about insects.